Good morning. There's an old saying that the nail that sticks up is the nail that gets hammered. And if I was to ask you about a society that exemplified that saying, where if you keep your head down, you comply with what's expected of you, and you don't otherwise make yourselves apparent, you could get by without any problems. Which society springs to mind? I suspect almost any that you could think of throughout history. But the Roman Empire certainly exemplified it. And to a greater extent, I uh, or lesser extent, I suspect so really does ours. Last week, Roy looked at the implications for this for the church at Smyrna. And today we're carrying on our look at the messages to the churches from Revelation by looking at the church at Pergamum. Now, Pergamum lay some 55 miles north of Smyrna, and it was about 15 miles from the sea. It was the provincial capital of the Roman province of Asia and had a long, proud history as an independent kingdom before the Romans took it over. The key feature of the city was a thousand foot high, 335 meters or thereabouts, rock acropolis, which was covered with temples to the various gods, as well as being a center of worship of Asclepius, the healer god also sometimes referred to as the savior god. And it was the first city in Asia to be given permission to build a temple to an emperor, more especially a living emperor, which was Augustus in 29 BC, and preceded by several years the cult temples for the emperor that were built in Smyrna. It's no wonder that Jesus referred to it in verse 13 as the place where Satan's throne is and where Satan dwells. It can't have been an easy place to be a Christian and still less to witness to other people. But while we don't have to deal with empire, emperor worship and thriving pagan temples all around us, you might see some similarities between our situation and that of the Church of Pergamon. Their society didn't see any of the gods as exclusive. Each was as valid as any other. And you were expected to pick and choose and not be dedicated to one God. And our society similarly, it sees all religions as equally valid or in many cases, equally meaningless. Both societies, Roman and present day, have moral codes that are focused much more on what you want and what you like as an individual rather than on any absolute standards of right and wrong. And both put a relatively low value on human life and dignity unless it's your own, of course. The Roman world saw many people as property, whether they were slaves, women, who were either the property of their husband or their father before they were married, or the lower classes, who were serfs and tenants and didn't count. In our country, while slavery is abhorred, recent surveys have shown that many people see the prospects of thousands of deaths from COVID as an acceptable price for getting back to normality, being able to go to the pub when you want to, and having a fully functioning economy. Is that really any different to the Roman attitude to people? There are therefore lessons that we can learn from their experience at Pergamum, and even more from how Jesus saw that church. Now the church in Pergamon had, despite their difficult environment, been a faithful witness in that dark city. Jesus commends them for it, verse 13, and for holding fast to their faith, 
even when Antipas was killed there a few years before John wrote the book of Revelation. But as with most of the seven churches, Jesus had a criticism of them. They had allowed people who hold the teachers of Balaam and the Nicolaitans to remain in the church in verses 14 and 15, unlike the church at Ephesus, which we saw in, in chapter 2, verse 6. Now, in Acts 15, we read that following the council in Jerusalem, the church leaders wrote to the Gentile converts, directing them to avoid only a few things. In verses 28 and 29 of that chapter, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to impose on you no further burden than these essentials, that you abstain from what's been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what is strangled and from fornication. But if you look at verse 14, of our passage today, it's clear there were a minority in the church of Pergamum that weren't following this. And not only were they not following it, they were trying to teach others that such behavior was acceptable. Their view seems to have been that our liberty in Christ as Christians is a liberty to go on sinning, possibly based on an overemphasis on the spiritual and despising the physical aspects of being a human being. So sin, something that affects the physical body, isn't really an issue. But that's clearly not what the Bible teaches. We're called as Christians to live a holy life. 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16. Instead, as he who called you is holy, be holy yourselves in all your conduct. For it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And Paul had had to address the issue too. And he emphasized that our freedom in Christ is a freedom from, from sin and not freedom to sin. For example, look at Romans 6, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And Jude similarly condemned this idea in his letter in Jude uh, verse 4. Apart from being disobedient to God's command, apart from spoiling our day-to-day -day relationship with God, not living a good life corrupts our witness to others. It brings the church and our faith into disrepute. It brings Jesus into disrepute. Peter made this clear in his first letter. You may remember when we looked at the, these passages, we're called to be different. We're called to live holy lives. Look at 1 Peter 3, verse 13, verse 16, and 1 Peter 4, chapter 4, verse 2. We live those holy lives so people can see that we're Christians, so that we have an opportunity to witness, and so that we can't be criticized for doing what is wrong, as well as to honor God and to respond to the love he's shown us. It's clear from the passage we've read today and from Jesus's initial words to this church specifically, that he has a cons real concern that his church holds to the truth and is holy in everything. So why is truth important? Well, in everyday life, truth is important because it allows trust between people. Trust in promises, trust in facts that were given, trust in what people do for us. Imagine what the world would be like if everyone lied to each other all the time. It would be completely dysfunctional. If the, if the train company said, yes, the train's going to come at 10 past seven and it came at seven o'clock. If the plumber said, yes, I'll come and fix your, your leak this afternoon because I know it's urgent and he turned up in a week's time. If the people you live with, you work with, you couldn't trust them to actually do what they said at any one time. How would anything get done? How would any relationship survive? 
But truth is even more important in our faith. We have to accept the truth about Jesus if we're to be saved. He was very clear about that. He said to Philip, I am the way, the truth and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but by me. John 14, verse 6. And a little while later, he told Pilate, For this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. John 18, verse 37. Now, this is something that is incredibly difficult for a world that sees everything moral as relative and subjective to accept, whether it's first century Pergamum or 21st century Amesbury. And that relativistic thinking can also affect the church and infect the church, perhaps. And it had at Pergamon. Satan had tried persecution. The church had held strong. So he tried a more subtle attack. He got into a, into a few members of the church. They drifted from the truth. They adopted what is a heretical belief. And yet the majority of the church hadn't dealt with it whether they thought they might gradually bring those straying back to the right path, were just unsure what the correct, what correct belief it was, or just didn't want a confrontation, because after all, you know, nobody wants a, an argument and church discipline. Whatever the reason, though, the church of Pergamon had fallen short of what Jesus expected of them. You can see that in verse 14 and 16, because they hadn't confronted the error in their midst and dealt with it. Now, we do need to recognize that there are levels of issue within the church. There are fundamental, essential truths that we cannot compromise on. And there are less important things, less consequential things that actually there is no clear answer. There could be different approaches. So what is the essential truth of our faith? John Stott summed it up by saying Christianity is Christ. The irreducible minimum to be a Christian is to accept that Jesus of Nazareth is the unique God-man who died for our sins and was raised from death to be the saviour of the world. That's what we need to believe. But that belief, that acceptance must then lead to action. If Jesus is the divine Lord, then we each need to submit to him as our Lord. If he is the divine saviour, then we must accept him as our saviour. And if we've done that, then our lives should change. We should be seeking to live holy lives, as we've already seen mentioned in Peter. Not that we earn our salvation, but that we live in obedience to Jesus by doing the good works that God has prepared for us. Ephesians 2 verse 10. For we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. Antipas and the other Christians of Pergamon had done this. Faced with the demand that they prove their loyalty to the empire by offering incense to the emperor, essentially recognizing him as divine, they had held fast to Jesus and to, truth and to the truth. Satisfying the authorities in that case was easy. All you needed to do was throw a pinch of incense into the sacred fire burning before the bust of the emperor and say, Caesar is Lord. And many would say, why not? What harm can it do? It doesn't change what you really believe and it avoids trouble. 
but it would have been contrary to what they stated in their worship and in their witness. It was against what they believed. It was against the truth of who they were, of who Jesus was. And in their minds would undoubtedly have been John's teaching that 1 John 2 verses 21 to 23. I write to you not because you know the truth, you do not know the truth, but because you know it and you know that no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar but the one that denies Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Everybody who confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he's promised us, eternal life. Jesus, when he was questioned by the Pharisees about tax, told them, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. Matthew 22, verse 21. To do what the authorities wanted, to burn that incense to the emperor, was to do the opposite. And it was to give to Caesar what was God's. And Jesus also told his disciples, Matthew 10, verse 28, don't fear those who kill the body and cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. The Church of Pergamon lived this out. They put the threat of death against the promise of eternal life, and they chose eternal life over earthly life. Church tradition has it that Antipas was roasted to death inside a bronze bull. But even faced with that grisly end, he was unwilling to deny Jesus, as we can see in verse 13. And yet, despite this stand, despite holding fast through that external threat, the church had somehow gone wrong and they'd compromised with false teaching. And this isn't something that's restricted to the early church. You can hear it today when people say, oh, it's no use being idealistic, we're only human, or as a church, we can't stand away against society's going. We need to adapt our services and what we teach to fit with what non-church non people want to hear. But that isn't what the Bible teaches. The early church stood out in the way they, leave, the way they lived. They were the nail that stood up and a consequence sometimes were hammered. They taught and they lived ways that were radically different to their society. They kept away from sexual immorality. They treated even children, women, and slaves as people, people who are valuable, very differently to their neighbours. We do need to be idealistic. We need to hold fast to what the Bible teaches and to proclaim it to the world in our witness and our teaching. It might not be what the world wants to hear, but it is what it needs to hear. And it's what Jesus expects us to do, just as he expected of Pergamum when he called them to repent for their compromise and deal with the problem that he had, they had. And as with all of these letters, there's a warning. In this case, Jesus warned, if they didn't deal with the false teaching, he was gonna come and do it. So what's the lesson for us? How do we here in Amesbury Baptist ensure we don't fall into the same error as Pergamon? Well, first of all, we need to recognize it's possible. 
Pergamum was not a poor church. They had stood fast in the face of persecution to the point of death of some of their members. Yet they'd still fallen into error. Each of these messages to the churches is for all the churches. Look at the phrase they've all got. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. It is always to the churches, not the church. <clears throat> While addressed to individual congregations, the messages are generally applicable as warnings and promises for all of the churches and for not just in the Asian area, but throughout the life of the church to date. A Pergamum, they accepted false teaching. The way we avoid this is shown to some extent by the threat that Jesus made and the warning he gave in verse 16, where he said he would fight against the false teachers with the sword of his mouth. Paul talked about the sword of the spirit in Ephesians 6, 17, the word of God. And in Hebrews 4, 12, the word of God is described as sharper than any two-edged sword. The false teaching would be dealt with through God's word, the word of truth. So how do we make that happen for us? Well, I believe it calls on each of us to be active in the way that we are listening to teaching in the church and in house groups and in our private reading of the Bible to ensure that we grow in our knowledge and exposure to God's word so that we can see whether things that we're taught comply with what the Bible says. We shouldn't just be sponges that sit in the pews and sit and take in what is being said from the pulpit or by the leader without thought. We should be listening, critically thinking and checking what's being said. 1 John 4, 1 to 3 says, Beloved, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. So in a sermon, have a Bible open. Look up the verses that are mentioned during a sermon. Or take notes to do it later. And as we're listening, we should be asking, is the message about Jesus, the Son of God, our Savior, and what he's done for us? Think, is the preacher using other passages to support what they're saying? Are those passages being used in context? Are there other passages maybe that would suggest different ideas if you look for them? And if you're not sure, be prepared to ask the preacher what he meant or, or for further information. I think we'd all be more than happy to have those conversations with people after a service. But let's remember the other side of this. There's a promise, the promise that we all have in Jesus as his followers, the promise of eternal life, the promise that Antipas and so many others down the years have clung to in times of trial and persecution. And the promises that Jesus gave the Pergamum church in this passage, the hidden manna, the white stone and the new name. These are gifts for the one who overcomes, who finds and sticks to the truth, sticks to Jesus to the very end. So what are these gifts? Well, if you look at the original manna, it was God's gift of food to the Israelites in the desert. You can read about it in Exodus 16. The hidden manna, the bread of life, is Jesus. John 6, 35. The white stone 
possibly refers to the either the breastplate worn by the high priest or the urim and thummim carried by the high priest to discern the will of God, Exodus 28. And that refers to our privilege to be a kingdom of priests, Revelation 1.6. Able to enter into the very presence of God, something that only the high priest could do. And the name, a name represents the power of a person. The new name we're given is that of Jesus. We're adopted into God's family. We're made joint heirs with Jesus, Romans 8, 16 and 17. Isn't that an amazing privilege? These are pledges that those who hold fast to the revelation we've received, the revelation that's in the Bible, the truth that has been taught down the years, the truth of our faith, those people will receive in due course a fuller revelation, a closer relationship with Jesus in the life to come. As Paul put it in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly, then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part, then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. We have an amazing destiny as Christians. All we've got to do is rely on God's spirit, hold fast to Jesus, keep close to him, and we will inherit that. What a wonderful God we